Hello and welcome to the second part of an episode that we recorded at Kate's Cemetery where we learned about some of the unusual women that are buried there with some uh, pretty colourful life stories, shall we say? Yeah, definitely. So this is the second part of the same conversation, so we definitely recommend listening to part one first. Enjoy. Now, we'll move on now to a woman who sounds like she was pretty much the complete opposite of Harriet Bevan, Minnie Maguire. Yes. And she is she in, in an unmarked grave? Minnie Maguire is in an unmarked grave. Um, when you hear her history, it, it's not surprising that that's the case. In fact, if you go looking for it, it's in the middle of a lot of bushes. We, we can plot Minnie's journey through life. She was born in 1861 through a series of newspaper reports about her court appearances. Uh, Just a few examples. In 1885, when she was aged about 24, we learn that she has already clocked up 58 convictions for disorderly conduct. On this particular occasion, she's described as a disorderly prostitute causing an obstruction in Bridge Street by behaving in such an indecent manner that a crowd of 200 persons were drawn together. But for that, she was sentenced to three months with hard labour. 1888, we find her again charged with assault and wounding a, a policeman in Butte Street. And then she got six months hard labour. 1889, uh, there's a headline, Shocking Indecency at Cardiff. And uh, she's again uh, in, accused of disorderly and obscene language before a large crowd of people. Uh, Minnie wept when admitting to this but begged to be sent to the union, i.e. the workhouse. She'd only just come out of prison after three months. She attributed her actions to the fact that her husband had just gone to sea, an event she claimed to be celebrating by taking a glass too many. (laughs) She was sent to the union, but just a week later she was back in court, again charged with being a prostitute and behaving in a disorderly manner in Butte Street, this time they were having none of letting Minnie off leniently and she was given three months with hard labour. Around this time, she decided to try her luck further afield. Uh, We then find her appearing in Newport Court a few times, again for for the same problems, drunkenness, um, on one occasion smashing the windows of a pub, uh, intoxicated in Commercial Street at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, uh, when she claimed she'd come to Newport to look for her husband and was celebrating the event by drinking whiskey. Uh, Later we find her appearing in Merthyr for the 27th time, and uh, we then find her appearing in court in Mountain Ash. She got around. Altogether, she she clocked up well over 100 uh, appearances in court and must have spent a large proportion of her life in prison. Uh, she was actually buried in 1919, uh, which means that she was 58 years old when she died. So she, despite all her... <laughs> she lived to quite life, a ripe old age. For, for those times, she, she, she did quite well, yes. So do we know why that she was in and out of prison? Was it just her upbringing, just to briefly return to her? Uh, I don't think we, we were 100% sure. Um, there is a book that's written about uh, uh, the, the seedier side of, of Cardiff in the 19th century, um, which mentions her and says that she was actually a pretty well-behaved girl when she was sort of quite young. Uh, oh, but she obviously fell in know, with the wrong crowd. I, I would think if you didn't have any money, 
um, it would be very easy to get onto the senior side of life in Cardiff. Mm. Okay, so moving on from a woman who sounds like caused quite a bit of violence to a woman who was sadly a victim of quite a bit of violence, Maggie Morwood-Jones. That's right. Uh, Our interest in Maggie uh, started off because of a simple request uh, from America asking us if we could find and photograph her grave. Um, This was not as easy as it sounded. Um, When we got to the location, it was a clump of very dense shrubs and trees. And if there was a memorial on the grave at all, it certainly wasn't visible at the time. It was two years later uh, that on a friend's workday, we made an exploratory expedition into the undergrowth and we actually found a black marble memorial to Maggie. And it was in surprisingly good condition. I think I should say that in keeping with Welsh mining tradition, uh, the approach at this stage was through tunnels of diminishing size. Uh, Since then, further work day attention has fully opened up the area. And in the meantime, in the associated correspondence, a tragic story evolved, and we're very grateful to uh, Gwen Johnson, who is uh, a part of the family uh, descended from the Morwood Jones family, um, had researched and shared with us. So our story of Maggie begins in uh, Tlenethley, in 1863, uh, she was born Margaret Ann, the daughter of David and Sarah Jones. David was uh, a manager at the Clethley Tin Plate Works of Messrs E. Morwood and Co. Um, that company set up a bigger works in Swansea in 1882, and that was when David was appointed to the management. By the age of 10, Margaret was already singing locally and being reported as having a singularly sweet soprano voice. Soon her services as a vocalist were in demand at small concerts in the Lethley, and this early success encouraged Margaret to pursue a career in the music profession. But this meant she had to hire a singing coach, needing money to travel to and participate in uh, singing expeditions, exhibitions. Uh, money was raised through benefit concerts which proved exceedingly popular in Tlethley and Swansea, and it was particularly well supported by Morwood's employees. As a 13-year-old amateur, she took part in the Cardiff Singing Exhibition, and made a favourable impression there. Two years later, she began 18 months of voice training tuition, and at 17 years of age, she entered the Royal Academy of Music in London. As it happened, there were several other artists with the surname Jones, and her voice tutor, they all from Wales. <laughs> uh, whether where they were from, I don't know, but uh, uh, certainly Jones was a common enough name. So the voice tutor helpfully suggested that she take on uh, an additional name or a different name, and the name Morwood, from her father's company, was suggested. Uh, at about this time, she also adopted the more affectionate version of her name, Maggie, and her stage name was then Miss Maggie Jones Morwood. Uh, you'll notice that uh, the Jones, Morwood and Morwood Jones are reversed depending on whether it's professional use or family use. But it does appear that the whole family adopted the Morwood into their name at that time. After graduating from the Royal Academy, she enjoyed several years of successful performing. She often sang with her sister Sarah, 
although four years her junior, she was a contralto, and she was also a music graduate from the Music College of Wales in Swansea. But she does not appear to have pursued a career as a singer. Uh, so the sisters were in demand in South Wales. Uh, one of the leading Welsh tenors at the time was Robert Rees, and he was very keen to sing with Maggie. Maggie's appearances were, were, were speci often specially arranged concerts and often commissioned to raise funds for worthy causes, which allowed her to demonstrate her prowess as a soloist. And on a number of these occasions, she appeared on the same bill as Adelina Patti, who had by then settled into Kriganos Castle. Uh, she also played leading parts in productions of the Turner Opera Company, which of course required acting skills to be blended with singing. In 1890, Maggie married John Jones, the manager of a silversmith in St Mary Street in Cardiff. Uh, they made Cardiff their new home, and they lived at number five Coldstream Terrace, which again is a house you can see today. Um, the couple had a daughter, Irene, born in 1891, and a son, Archibald, born in July 1893. But all was not well. When three months pregnant with Archibald, Maggie filed for divorce on the grounds of cruelty and adultery on the part of her husband. But for some reason, she didn't pursue the proceedings to a conclusion. Probably threatened by her husband, I imagine, or uh, the shame of divorce? Uh, we, we, again, we, we don't know more than that, but uh, clearly it wasn't a happy situation. But despite that, uh, we find that she's pregnant again. And on October the 8th, 1894, Maggie gave birth prematurely to a stillborn baby, and on the following day she was found dead at her home. She'd continued to perform until 1893, um, but the situation at home had clearly taken its toll. It happened that uh, at the coroner's inquest, her mother described arriving at Maggie's home and looking into the coffin and seeing that her daughter had two black eyes and other bruises. Other witnesses at the inquest confirmed that John Jones had physically abused his wife, often after drinking to excess. The jury gave graphic accounts of him throwing her or knocking her down six weeks earlier, and just a fortnight before her death, throwing her down and kneeling on her stomach. John Jones admitted to slapping his wife, but denied the severity of the assault, and he also countered that Maggie drank to excess as well and could be violent towards him. An independent post-mortem was called for, but concluded that as the last known assault would not have been responsible for Maggie's death, there was little doubt that the jury and coroner Sorry, he couldn't have been responsible for Maggie's death. There was little doubt that the jury and coroner believed what they believed, but after the medical evidence, they could not return a verdict of manslaughter. Despite this, the coroner addressed John Jones, saying, that is the verdict, and with the jury, I cordially agree. I can't understand any man ill-treating his wife the same way as you have ill-treated your wife, and it is fortunate for you that this premature birth did not come a day or two after the last assault for then it would have been difficult for anybody to have believed that it was not caused by your violence. Pretty damning. Pretty damning indeed, yes. The, the, the death um, and the inquest received wide publicity, but the funeral was very quiet. On Saturday the 13th of October, the cortege consisted of just one car and one coach. 
Um, the coffin bore the inscription, Margaret Ann Jones died 9th of September 1894, aged 27 years. But simple arithmetic tells us uh, that her age should have been 31, indeed was 31, and of course the month should have been October. Uh, it's strange that uh, it appears that within the family it was quite common for females to manipulate their ages, uh, even to the extent that census returns seem to have been incorrectly completed. Uh, but there is no doubting that she was 31 at the time of her death. The inscription on the Black Memorial uh, is simple enough, but it makes some interesting statements. Unusually for the period, her husband doesn't get a mention, which suggests that it was her family who ensured that she, her grave was properly marked. And also the name was given as Morwood Jones, the family name, as opposed to Jones Morwood, her stage name. And of course, on the grave, her age is given as 27, not 31. But the bigger crowds were to assemble shortly after the funeral. All the furniture and effects of number five Coldstream Terrace were auctioned. And the rooms were so crowded that the street in front of the house was blocked and the sale had to be extended for an extra day because of the crowds. Maggie's husband quickly migrated, emigrated to America and after two years sent for his two children. But he legally changed his and his children's surnames to Seymour. But they did also maintain the middle name of Morwood. That's nice that they had something of their mother. and I can't imagine her family, because there was nothing they could have done to stop him getting custody of the children, I presume, despite the fact that... Well, he, he was their father, yeah. um, and he hadn't been found guilty of any offence, so... In fact, it, 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 chances are that he was probably doing reasonably well in America. That's so sad. She was obviously had a bright future ahead of her, extremely talented. and Well, that's right. She was still really uh, fresh and very young. Mm. OK, just to finish off, uh, there's a couple of uh, these quite unusual stories. Um, the first one, well, I mean... She's, this is only unusual in the, the sort of her family name, uh, Marie Dahl. Yes, Marie. First wife of... Roald Dahl's father. Roald Dahl's father. Um, yes, Marie Dahl, uh, you could say, is, is a non-person. Uh, she died quite young at the age of 29. Uh, had she lived longer, then the chances are... Uh, either wouldn't have seen a Roald Dahl, or she would have been Roald Dahl's mother. Yeah, yeah. So she, yeah, she had lived. Roald Dahl probably would never have been, uh, never been born. Or uh, she might have given birth to. There might have been even more talent. <laughs> might have been even more talented. Yes, we don't know. We don't, don't know where where Roald inherited his talent from. Yeah. <laughs> it's from yeah. His maybe brother. she was. Maybe she was an amazing author in her own right, and he would have inherited all her talent. Yes. It's anyway, funny to think about alternate histories in that way. It's quite interesting that she has quite a large plot in the Catholic cemetery. Uh, so there was clearly intended, uh, it was intended that more people would be buried there, presumably because uh, her husband married again, mm. his family extended, uh, and they are now buried elsewhere. Uh, nobody joined her. So what was his second wife called? Do we, I, can't, I, can't, I can't remember. But that was Roald Dahl's mother anyway. So. Yes, yes, yes. 
Yeah. So it's sad that Marie died, but I mean, also, if she had lived, we might never have See, rolled had, had Roald Dahl. Might, might, might never have had rolled Dahl. So. Okay. Now to finish off, this is, I have to say, one of the most bizarre deaths I've ever heard of. Louisa Maud Evans, known as the no, it seems to be known as the Balloon Girl. The Balloon Girl. The yes. Balloon Girl. Um, I think she's probably one of the most famous burials in the cemetery. Um, there has been a heritage trail uh, around the cemetery for probably 30 years now, and she was on it from the start, so it's quite a well-known story. But fortunately, it's also been expanded by research that's been done by um, a Cardiff lady uh, who has written a book as a result of her research, which fills in an awful lot more detail. But Louisa Maud Evans uh, had a very sad start in life. She was born in Bristol. Uh, her father was a seaman. Her mother was an actress. And uh, it was very clear that n neither parent really wanted a child because she was an inconvenience to them for following, uh, following their, their trades. So were they married or uh, we don't know? We, we don't know that they were even married. Mm. But uh, anyway, Louisa was... Poor Louisa. She was palmed off on a neighbour who, who looked after her until she was 10 and, and, and by all accounts seemed to have looked after her well. She was, she was educated. Uh, she, she did a little bit of work. Uh, but at about the age of about 10, uh, she became a domestic servant with Hancock Circus, which was a, a fairground family that toured around the West Country. And uh, at one point, they were in uh, 1896, they were down in Cornwall, and the circus had invited a balloonist from France across uh, to put on a show during their fair. Now, Maud was clearly intrigued by this. Uh, the, the balloonist um, had employed a, a female to do the, the, the tricky bit, going up in, in, in a balloon and jumping down. The important bit. The important bit, that's right. Um, but this doesn't seem to have been uncommon in Victorian times. Uh, that that uh, There were quite a lot of women balloonists about, apparently. Um, hmm. And it was quite an attraction. There's an untold story there. F the, f the women balloonists of Victorian England. That, that's right, yes. I'd read that book. I, th I, th I think if you do a search on the internet, you'll actually find information about it all. So it's, it's, mm. it's quite well documented. But anyway, uh, Louisa uh, was clearly fascinated uh, by this ballooning, and particularly by the young lady uh, who was doing the, the jumps. Um, but this young lady, she learned, uh, was going to get married and was leaving uh, ballooning behind. It was a hazardous occupation in any case. Uh, but that didn't deter Maud. Um, the balloonist moved to Cardiff uh, to take part in the Cardiff exhi exhibition in July of 1896. The exhibition was um, the Fine Arts, Maritime and Industrial uh, exhibition, which actually ran for something like six months and was a huge affair. Um, it occupied the space which we, is now occupied very largely by uh, Cate's Park. Um, in those days, it was part of the castle grounds. So that would be behind the National Museum in Cardiff? Well, it, it, covering that sort of area, yeah. yes, that sort of area. 
the um, uh, the floor space, exhibition floor space, uh, was probably equivalent to the, the museum, uh, the city hall, and the law courts all put together. There were uh, at least two theatres. Uh, there was a an underground mining experience, beating Big Pit by about a hundred years. Um, there was a small canal there. Uh, they put a branch off the Taffal Railway into the centre of the site to help people getting there. It attracted getting on for a million visitors to Cardiff. So it was, it was really quite a, an exhibition, probably one of the biggest ones to take place anywhere in the world up to that time. Wow. It would have been very exciting, I guess, if you were a sort of young girl, not really wanted by your family, saw a chance to have a bit of an adventure... Well, that's right. Well, what happened was the balloonist arrived in Cardiff and a day later, uh, Louisa had uh, disappeared from the uh, circus and she turned up in Cardiff, uh, searched around to find the balloonist and introduced herself and uh, then sort of hung, hung around with him. Uh, the balloonist did a couple of jumps himself and, and uh, they weren't exactly, didn't exactly go smoothly. Uh, in, on one other occasion, he landed down on a heap of um, stacked materials around the docks, and another material actually came down in one of the docks. <laughs> uh, so he wasn't doing too Which would well. be the more comfortable landing? <laughs> Maybe I, I, the docks? I would, I would think the water would yeah. be more comfortable. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, he damaged the balloon. He'd been in book to uh, do flights on successive days, uh, but in fact he had to extend his stay here to get in the same number of flights. And by the time it came to the third uh, balloon flight, <coughs> he, uh, there'd also been some sort of pressure to have a female balloonist. And so all the pieces came together and Louisa ended up being the balloonist. So on her very first flight, uh, she's described as a, a pretty little woman with girlish blue eyes. She was wearing a sailor suit, nominous choice as it turned out. Uh, and it all went, all went to plan to start with. Uh, there were cheers and loud shouts, wishing her good luck. She took her seat beneath the balloon. And caught by a stiff breeze, was well above the houses in a matter of seconds. From my eyewitness reports, she went over the Roth area, travelled at great speed over Newport Road, over the infirmary towards the docks, and open sea beyond. However, the wind suddenly dropped, which caused the balloon to rapidly gain height. Sorry, it gained... It gained height. The gained wind, height. Uh, the, the, uh, the wind dropped. Uh, the balloon was, it was a hot air balloon. So, oh, so it was, I see. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So, so, so it, 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 all its energy was going into going upwards rather than going along. It says... Um, and it appears that she was well over 5,000 feet uh, before she released herself from the balloon harness. Uh, the arrangement here is... Uh, the. the the parachute was not like a parachute we would know today. It was a very crude but heavy affair. Uh, it was already deployed above her and attached to the balloon. She had sat on a, a trapeze hanging under the balloon. And as soon as she dropped off the trapeze, her weight would be enough to pull the parachute away from the balloon. And she would drift down. I see. It does appear that uh, she um, uh, made a, 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 a successful descent, apart from the fact that she ended up in the Seven Estuary. Um, 
We don't know exactly what happened then, but it seems likely that uh, the weight of the uh, balloon and the water, and she got tangled up in it. But anyway... Would she have been able to swim? Did, did people I, I, sort of... I don't think anybody even bothered to check whether she could swim. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't supposed to end up there. <laughs> but anyway... Um, this is why health and safety assessments are so important. <laughs> that's right. I mean, it's the sort of thing that would, would never be allowed to happen today. Never. Uh, it's, it's quite interesting that it's highly likely that somebody would have been prosecuted under today's health and safety legislation. Oh, yeah, I guess nobody would have been held responsible for this. I mean, she was sort of agreed to do it, so... She'd agreed to do it. Shall we say the, the situation was a bit dubious as to whether she'd been dubious, agreed yeah. or been dis persuaded and, and not had the proper training or whatever. There's, there's a lot of question marks there. But anyway, her body was actually found... Uh, Buried near the mouth of the river Usk uh, at Nash three days later. She was actually discovered by uh, a girl of about the same age who was, uh, lived at a local farm and was out collecting driftwood from the shore from, for the home fire. Uh, it took uh, quite an exercise to retrieve her from the foreshore because it was quite remote across the levels at that, that point. Uh, she was taken to... Um, Nash village and her body was put in the, the bell tower of the church for a couple of nights they had an inquest in the local pub and, and then a couple an of inquest in a pub inquest in the pub yes <laughs> that was very very happy as well uh, but they did get uh, people involved with her balloon flight there including the, the French balloonist uh, who made lots of excuses but was seen as a, a rather dubious um, Witness a sketchy what figure, um, and, and clearly was trying to uh, devolve any blame that might be attached to him. So, so that what happened. But then uh, uh, she was taken to a funeral director's premises in Newport, and a couple of days later she was uh, brought by carriage from Newport uh, to Cardiff. And by all accounts, uh, there were large numbers of people coming out in the various villages along the route and from the outskirts of Cardiff the crowd grew and grew and uh, there were literally uh, lined streets for the last portion of her, her journey coming up uh, what we now call City Road uh, to the cemetery. That's really, that's a, it's a bizarre story but it's very sad as well because she was just kind of, you know, looking, a young girl, not you know, not didn't have much of a family life. Parents weren't interested. Wanted some excitement. Wanted a bit of adventure. I don't think it ended the way she would have wanted. But well, I, I, no. I, you, 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 you feel at the same time that she felt she had achieved something beyond all expectations. Um, yeah, I suppose. And, and which you know, there was nobody else to appreciate but herself. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that's a nicer way to look at it. Okay, so. You, uh, there's a, a Friends of Cate Cemetery group which you are a member of. That's correct, what's, yes. Uh, what sort of work do you, do you get up to? Um, well, the Friends of Cate Cemetery were formed in uh, 2006. Their uh, role is, is really as a, uh, you could call it a pressure group, uh, but we, we, we don't really seem to have to apply pressure. 
uh, we, we don't own the cemetery. You will find around the country there are friends groups at cemeteries who have complete responsibility for the cemetery. So they have to operate uh, annual budgets in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds in some cases. Uh, we can operate on a relatively small budget. Um, the responsibility for, for, for maintaining this cemetery um, is still with uh, Cardiff City Council through bereavement services. So they do the bulk of the work. Uh, but we do help. We have work days and uh, we do a bit of clearance. We do various jobs. On the last work day, uh, we were tidying up the area around the chapels. And I think the chapels is perhaps what we would regard as our biggest success. Again, I'd emphasise that we haven't found much of the money that's been involved. But if you go back ten years, uh, the Catholic chapel had disappeared by then, been demolished because it had fallen into a state of disrepair. Uh, the other two chapels uh, had tarpaulins over their roofs and were fenced off by security fencing because they were in a dangerous condition. Um, over the intervening period then, um, the, the roofs have been repaired, uh, floors have been put back into the chapels in two stages. Initially it was just a temporary floor to make them habitable. Uh, the windows have been reglazed. Again, it's not uh, to the standard of the originals, but uh, uh, it's still an acrylic um, glazing, which makes them watertight. Uh, the, the walls have been restored. They've been cleaned up. Uh, the friends did uh, acquire some pews from a, a church in Penturk, which was getting rid of theirs. So we have some Victorian pews in the place. Uh, one of the chapels uh, has had the plaster removed from the walls because of the damp, and it was found that it, was, it looked better uh, with bare stone walls than it did with plaster walls. So, um, so one chapel has bare walls now, and the other one has, still has plastered walls. Uh, there, there was some damaged tiling uh, in one of the chapels, which the friends uh, found funds to restore, this was quite a, a, an expensive exercise because they had to be specially made from original patterns. The um, chapel that has the bare walls was brought back into use for, strangely enough, initially, uh, marriages. Really? Marriages, yes. So there are people that are quite Want keen to get, to get married, married there. in a cemetery? Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's quite a, uh, an atmospheric place, the building, and I'd imagine it's probably uh, quite competitive compared with a lot of venues that uh, offer services for, for, mm. for weddings. Uh, it has also been brought back into use uh, uh, for funerary services. Although there are very few burials now in this cemetery, uh, uh, people can still have a funeral service in what you might call a traditional chapel and be buried elsewhere. Um, and strangely enough, about three weeks ago, uh, there was a, a memorial service, a funeral service in the chapel to, uh, here, uh, where the uh, hearse was a horse-drawn hearse with four black horses. Wow, old school. And if, if you'd actually seen that um, standing outside the chapels on the day, you would have been taken back 150 years to what things Vic would have yeah, been Victorian like funeral. That's right. So wow. It, it, things have gone full circle. Um, but we're very pleased that the chapels are back in use. Again, I re-emphasise that uh, 
credit for this has got to go to uh, the council. Uh, if, if the friends can take credit, is, is, is the fact that if we didn't exist, perhaps the council would not have felt the same pressure to find the money. Yeah. <laughs> so you um, you mentioned when we were talking about Maggie Moore Jones that you cleared a lot. You the grave was actually hidden, and you cleared yes, the undergrowth. Yes, Are there lots of other memorials here? That could there be other sort of unknown memorials and stories waiting to be discovered? I, I think when when I joined the Friends, which was a few years after they were formed, um, you could probably uh, list about thirty well-known people buried here. Um, as a result of uh, research that's been done since, predominantly by the Friends, because I say you've got to give credit to people researching their own family histories, yeah. who, who contact us. Like with Maggie in the in America, got a that, that's right message. So, so we've had quite a few like that. Um, people have asked us to, to help them, and they've helped us by sharing their stories or their family stories with us. So I would say we probably now have. Uh, certainly over a hundred interesting stories to tell and I always feel that uh, if you could look at any one of these graves you could find out something about who's buried there. No, yeah, there would I agree. be a, a lot more family histories and interesting histories and stories yeah. that would come out. Yeah I, I agree totally. Often I, if I'm you know walking through a churchyard or something you see like an inscription or something that's a bit unusual and you know you want to you're like oh I wish I knew the story behind that but often they're lost. That, that's right. Um, I mean, I, I can remember one story which, which we got from a, somebody in Czechoslovakia. Um, wow. And somebody who runs a, a website out there. Um, and, and we realised that we had uh, a war grave in this cemetery, um, which was in a slightly different style, and it was in the style of uh, Czechoslovakian war graves. Um, in trying to find out more about person, we found that he was a Czech who had escaped at the beginning of the war to this country, uh, served in the uh, RAF in a Czech uh, squadron, and was killed on a training flight up in Scotland. He married uh, a local person, so that's why he was buried here. But the really interesting thing about it was that at the end of the war, there had been a feeling that uh, Czech soldiers and servicemen uh, that were buried here should be uh, ex exhumed and, and repatriated and buried at home. When the cost was looked at, it was discovered that it was just going to be too expensive. And it was decided uh, to have uh, a sort of symbolic transfer. And so a small amount of soil was taken from the grave here, put in a little uh, container, and along with a few hundred others, transported back to Czechoslovakia. Now, the story doesn't end there. It, this was the communist regime, and, and these things seem to have been put in a, a little store and forgotten about. Yeah. And it was 50 years later that they, were, that they were rediscovered, by which time some of the containers had deteriorated and, and, and the things had spilled out, the contents spilled out. But uh, those that were still whole and, and recognisable were still kept in unique containers, but put into new containers. And had been put in... Uh, some were, were given back to families... Uh, because Czechoslovakia is split into two parts now, uh, some went to one part and one went to the other part, uh, but in the Czech Republic there is a memorial there which contains a bit of soil from Kate Cemetery, uh, which is a symbolic remains of, of, of the area. That's fascinating. Died. And all this comes out sometime 
by complete chance. <laughs> so the Friends have a website if people would like to find yes. out more? Yes, uh, just just Google Friends of Cadet Cemetery and you'll yeah. get there. If people want to get involved? Um, yes, if you want to get involved, by all means, we can always <laughs> use help. Um, so just to finish off, if uh, other people wanted to maybe do some graveyard detective work of their own and find out a bit more mm-hmm. about people buried in other cemeteries what where where would they where should they start do you think um well, gosh that's difficult I, I i'm a lazy researcher i suppose <laughs> um uh, sometimes i look at a name and i think uh that looks an interesting name this what happens if you put that into google does it come up with anything interesting or does it not and sometimes bingo you do get something um, I, I looked at one um, because there was a the father of the boy that was buried there had a VC against his name so I put that into Google and uh, one of the first things that came up was um, an auctioneer's catalogue description because the VC had just come up for auction and there were pages of information about this man so somebody else had done all the work researching him and we got <laughs> and the story get... <laughs> great, perfect but at other occasions, you put in a name, you think, Nothing. well, this looks a good name, and mm. it's expensive grave, it must have been important. Nothing at all. So, I guess you go to new, newspaper, old newspapers online? Uh, old newspapers online is good, but they're, they're only online uh, in, in detail and searchable up until uh, the beginning of uh, the 20th century. Oh, I see. Um, other things tend to be, a lot of, lot of websites will have data, um, particularly things like Ancestry um, but you have to join which costs, costs you, you've got to keep a subscription going to, to do that um, there are, but newspaper cuttings are good if you, if you, if you can get into them, um, obviously libraries I mean Cardiff's library has a, a good archive of old newspapers but it's a laborious system to search there is no real index, you've got to start off with a date and then look through uh, all the newspapers around that date mm. and all the pages of those newspapers in the hope that you're going to find something. Uh, so it can be quite a long job. Um, apart from that, I, I think <coughs> it can come out of family history. Uh, today, uh, we picked up some information recently um, out of Facebook where somebody had put some comments about somebody on Facebook and that had produced other comments and filled in and you got the bones of the story out of that. So I, th- I think that it, there's always hope, but some, you, you've got to be prepared for disappointment <laughs> as well as elation. Hope for the best, hope but for the best, expect, yes. uh, maybe expect to encounter some difficulties. Well, Gordon, thank you very much for talking to me today. That's all right. It's been great fun. So that was the episode. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Did you have a favourite, particularly favourite story or anything? Yeah, I uh, really enjoyed um, what Gordon was saying about the community aspect of what the yeah. friends do. So people give up their time to research to help clear the cemetery. And I think that was really great. Mm. And I also really liked that um, people kind of write in from overseas. Yeah. And they have that kind of aspect of. Uh, people wanting to know about their family history Mm. and coming to the Friends for Help. And the fact, I think that you could just be cutting back undergrowth and then this massive 
stone memorial could just appear out of nowhere. Yeah. Is, <laughs> I think it's that'd cool, be, yeah. Yeah, it would be. And also it's kind of sad in a way that, you know, people would have, these people would have been meant a lot to others and they would have come and mourned at the grave and now it, mm. it's just kind of forgotten about, but then rediscovered. Yeah, I guess the second lease on life so, and yeah. that, yeah. I think my personal favourite was either the balloon girl at the yeah. end, uh, just because that's like, you know, stranger than fiction. Yeah. Couldn't make that up. But also I liked what he said that it was really sad that she died, but in a way she felt like she had achieved something, which I'd, ne- I'd not really thought about before. Like she, yeah. it was better that she did that rather than stay with parents that didn't really want her. Mm. or anything like she at least got to do something and have a taste of adventure uh even if she did die tragically yeah <laughs> um i also like francis shand yeah a, i really enjoyed that story as well yeah that was a, i'd often walk past shand house and i'd not known the name so it was nice to know a bit of history about that yeah although definitely. i wish we could know a bit more i feel like she must have you know, she, you feel like she would have faced discrimination mm. like she must have she done, must have done yeah. but the fact that she was still able to achieve so much yeah, and for the impressive. benefit of other people as well. Yeah. And uh, also Claire Darris, the mystery Russian yeah. lady. That was cool. We really know what's going on there. And the other... Was it... See, it's not Special Forces. Was it Lillian... Lillian Olive Larkin? Yeah, who sort of... But we don't know what she did because it's still under embargo. Yeah, like, still <laughs> I should have found out when it's going to... When the infant... When you could find... When you can yeah, see the information, get? I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> like the moment the embargo gets lifted, Holly's gonna be there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, big thanks to Gordon for giving us his time. Yeah, he's very generous. Yeah. Um, if you want to find out some more information about the Forensic Potato Cemetery, they have a website. So check them out online. And if you're in the Cardiff area, maybe you should think about you know getting involved. Mm. They're a nice bunch. I've met them. So <laughs> I can vouch for them. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, and also, we should have said this in the first episode, but we didn't because we forgot. Big thanks to my friend Annie Clough Hillman for designing the logo for the podcast. Yeah, it's very kind of her. We especially needed the help as Holly and I have no artistic Zero. talent to speak of. Zero artistic talent. Uh, but she has loads because she is an illustrator. She's got a website, annieclaughhillman.com. If you're in the market for such a thing, you should definitely check her out. She's got an Etsy as well. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. And big thanks to our friends Harry and Lizzie for the editing and music respectively. Yes. We'd be lost without all these people. Yeah, we need... We, <laughs> we do. have very talented friends. We have very talented friends. And... Uh, we definitely need the help. Yes. So grateful for that. Okay. See you next time. Tara. Stories of the Sisterhood was presented by Holly Morgan Davis and Alicia Joy Davis. It was produced by Harry Bly with music by Elizabeth Grace Watson. Mm-hmm.